0: movies entertain entertainment leads to emotions those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film
1: and that is why we exist to focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit because
0: every movie makes us feel something
1: Welcome, everyone, to episode 142 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my Aqua Bro, Patrick.
0: Hey, everyone,
1: and special returning guest Andrew B. Dice from Screenrant.com. Honorary Aqua Bro, honorary Aqua Bro. You're always an Aqua Bro to us. Yes, Aqua half Bro at the very <laughs> least. <laughs> uh, <laughs> aqua stem Bro, I can deal with that. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Well, listeners, Andrew is routinely with us to talk about new DC Extended Universe flicks. And coincidentally, he has also discussed Waterworld with us in episode 72. So having him back for this one kind of made perfect sense. Now, if you've followed us on social media or listened the last couple of weeks of episodes, you'll already know how much of a fan I am of this film. But what you may not know is how Andrew and Patrick feel about James Wan's epic underwater fantasy. So why don't we just uh, dive right in with our one-word takeaways? And I'm we'll excited just...
0: about puns. I'm excited <laughs> about water puns. This oh boy! Whole episode.
1: You are allowed infinite number of puns just because <laughs> I am so happy.
0: I'm gonna be making waves with my one-word. Oh one word boy! Oh, boy. Like, okay. Here the we go. The tides will be coming in. Here we go. All right. <sighs>
1: Well, real quick, I just want to say, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Aquaman yet, I'm a little surprised based on the um, box office numbers, the odds are in our favor that you have, but if you haven't, please get out to the theater and go see this movie. If you have any interest at all, if you're listening to this episode, you probably do, so go check out the film in theaters, it demands to be seen on a big screen with the best sound and visuals you can possibly get. Um, and then come back and listen to us, because we're going to spoil the heck out of it. And it does have a pretty darn decent story that has some good little things to be spoiled. So we don't want to ruin that for you. And you can come back and listen after you've seen the film. All right, Andrew, you're the guest. As always, would you do us the honor of going first with your one word takeaway?
2: I, I would be uh, honored. So let me just flow right into this. Uh, my one word takeaway would be refreshing. Refreshing mainly because um i got a chance this is this is the gift and the curse i got a chance to see this movie uh like a month before uh it it went into theaters which is super fun and and very lucky and very cool but uh it was also before people had really started talking about what the finished version of this movie was so while most people went into it maybe not knowing what to expect um I went into it having absolutely no word of mouth to even tell me what to expect uh, aside from what was in some of the trailers, even the the trailers had yet to come out when I saw it, Um, some of them. So from minute one, uh, I went into it, and for the first time in a long time, I felt like I need to figure out what this movie wants from me uh, in, in watching it, and especially with uh with a lot of um i mean mainly the dc movies have been directed by one person uh you know the the ones that i've seen the most often and uh with marvel movies there's there's definitely the expectation of what you're going to be getting with this uh i was thrust into a type of fantasy movie i hadn't seen since i was a little kid i was seeing stuff that made me realize this is what maybe the first live action anime I've actually ever seen adapted faithfully. Um, and kind of from beginning to end uh, when we got into the halfway through the film and you kind of alluded to the, the twists and surprises, we were going into the last chunk, maybe third of the movie. And I realized I have no idea what is going to happen. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to be seeing and I don't know how it's going to be shown to me. And, and so that was, um, walking out of the theater I, I couldn't remember the last time I was struck with with so much fresh stuff um, even if it was just the way it, it looked or sounded or just because it wasn't a white guy named Chris uh, in the lead role maybe <laughs> was was a good chunk of what was so refreshing but uh, refreshing absolutely is, is the word and I think based on um, a lot of the responses it, it seems like that has been a, a feeling with a lot of people leaving the theater too
1: yeah, definitely one that I would agree with as well. And I, I can echo what you're talking about there because a lot of folks always look at film critics or people in the industry like you are um, working for Screen Rant who get to see movies early and they're envious, right? But you're right. There is a curse aspect to that. I mean, I, when I got out of it, seeing it just at the early Amazon screening, even mm-hmm. my, my pool of people to talk to was very limited. And specifically, this happens with Patrick a lot where... He's not seeing something until opening weekend. I've seen it a week, two weeks. Gosh, Mary Poppins, I saw, you know, a month <laughs> in advance. And I'm not even able to, like, talk to my best friend about it because he's not able to go see the movie. And so you're right. It's it's tough because you have to sit on that uh, and just kind of soak it in in this, like, internal way. And you're, like, bursting, just ready to, you know, explode like a geyser and yeah. uh, just spew out all of this great conversation. Um, so, yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from. Patrick? Okay, so I have no earthly idea what you think. And I have set you up with probably completely unrealistic expectations based on how much I've talked about this the last <laughs> two weeks. So so how'd you come out of it, bro?
0: Well, late. I had to go to a late feature, which is not something I'd like to do because in all honesty, I'm not a guy who stays up late except for one or two nights a week for obvious reasons. Um, and usually my attention span is not as good as if it is like during the day. So um, fortunately this like Spider-Man was a movie that held my attention with all of the action, with all of the, the visuals, all the stuff that we'll, we'll get into in our discussion. But the word that, that really summed up my movie experience, uh, was expected. And you can take that one of two ways. Um, if you have been a part of the world of DCEU topical discussions of the last two or three years, Um, and how it's kind of grown or expanded or evolved, Um, the word expected would be negative (laughs) in that regard, generally speaking. Uh, That's not necessarily the case. Look, I admit that I'm in the majority of those who aren't huge Aquaman fans, although I got a newfound respect for him when I started reading the new 52. His was one of probably a dozen, half a dozen comic books that, that I picked up. I think you and I had started... We started reading uh, comics back, I guess, 2011.
1: 20, well, I remember yeah, it well.
0: 2011, yeah. And Jeff Johns, who, you know, if his name's on something, you should read it. it. You know, he was the front man for that. He was the he was the lead writer for it, along with, um, I think, Ivan Rice and Joe Prado were the with the yeah. artists on it at the time. And and I was really impressed. It was a it was a title that I would keep reading, if not for a kind of a slim budget I had to make some cuts here and there um, as the as my comic book collection started growing and my wallet budget kind of started shrinking so it was not because it was bad writing or I didn't enjoy it it was something that was incredibly like you mentioned Andrew very refreshing to get a really cool take on the character uh, an updated version a kind of meta version of this character who knew what kind of <laughs> history he had with with the people and uh, so I'm definitely in that majority of folks that are like Aquaman. OK, give me Superman, give me Batman, give me other men and, and some women before you give me Aquaman. But I'm, I'm not part of that group that thinks he's uncool necessarily. I'm also not an epic fantasy person. You say Warcraft, I say what's next? Um, And with the exception of maybe Lord of the Rings, I'm just not going to volunteer my time to sit through two hours of. That kind of genre. It just does not appeal. Um, if the story is compelling enough, again, Lord of the Rings, I'm going to be in. And that'll be one that I can I can watch multiple times because of personal connection to it, because it's just a great series. Um, so I walked into the movie trusting James Wan and his directorial chops, even though he lends himself mainly to horror. Um, he's also lended his directorial skills to the Fast and the Furious franchise, which you know, Aaron and I, that's a special place in our hearts. (laughs) And um, so take that for what it's worth. Um, But I also went in with the expect with the kind of landscape of superhero films that we're used to seeing in my head. And the thing is, I got pretty much what I expected. So in that regard, my expectations, the expected word that I'm pulling here is actually a good thing, because we have seen over the last decade, whether it's, because of Marvel or DC or CG or just creative storytelling, we've seen an emergence of really good superhero films. We've also seen some that aren't great, but the level of quality has gone up and up and up and up and up. And as we're watching, as we're going through this road to end game, I think that's a topic of conversation. We're like, oh yeah, this still holds up or no, this not so much. And so leaving the theater after seeing this, I said, okay, that was, that was, that was good. There were parts that I liked. There are parts that I didn't. and, And that's really okay with me. I fully admit that my lack of excitement going into and coming out of the movie doesn't have to be the fault of the movie itself. It could be any reason whatsoever other than those. In fact, it was not the movie that elevated or diminished my expectations. And so, I don't know if that says the movie was great or not. It was it was fine for me. But I think had I seen this maybe two or three years ago, I think I would have reacted differently. But the level that that we're at in terms of superhero films and kind of the the depths that we're in to these characters that we're putting on screen. Sorry, yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna apologize for that un unintentional pun. Um is is something that I, I think it contributes to that superhero fatigue, Marvel fatigue, whatever you want to call it. And I try to, I try to leave that at the door. Unfortunately, (laughs) sometimes it just stays with me. It was a good superhero movie. And for my money, it was on par with what a movie like that should be. No more and no less. And so I was satisfied, not extremely like wowed, but not disappointed by any means.
1: Well, that is good enough for me. Um, I will take it. <laughs> if you're at least coming out of it even or slightly above average, then I can be satisfied. Um, and I, I love what you had to say there, um, specifically about how it doesn't have to be great for you for you to recognize that it is a well-done piece of art in its genre. And we're going to talk about that. <laughs> we're going to yeah. get into that
2: for sure. That, yeah, you know what? Uh, just on that note, I feel like Aquaman is is a unique character, which is like with Jeff Johns writing that. You know, you read that and then think, okay, make this into a movie and don't screw this up. Like th- this is a good story and this hits the beats. So just adapt it. And y- they did that and, and put a twist on it just with, with Snyder's casting of Mama. So I feel like even credits roll. Okay. You did it. Like, like you said, you know, it's like job, job done. Okay. Now we can move on to, to whatever it, when, when you're basing it off of a story as good or and as as simple and straightforward as that Jeff Johns story was, I feel like we did it fiof you know we, we didn't manage to like how many movies we see that are just like
1: how did you it was on the page
2: how did you not just adapt what was there and realize why it's good so I hear you
1: yeah for sure well um my word uh, that I am coming away with amongst a, a slew of adjectives and praise that I could throw on this movie. The one that I settled on is Incomparable because that is what this was for me. My film experience was truly unique. And I can remember one time in my entire life that I saw a movie and it made me a superhero fan. And that was Michael Keaton's Batman um, back in the 1980s, the late 80s. That movie is what initially gave me my entrance into batman's world and ever since i've had batman as my favorite superhero for 30 years and i've i've dived into you know his comics and his movies and his tv shows i mean of course i knew of the character beforehand but it was watching that film that kind of transported me and created this fan in me and it's an interesting thing because i see it all the time i saw it when wonder woman came out especially all of a sudden this slew of little girls who had not really cared too much about comic book movies. All of a sudden they became a fan of something, a tr- and fan in the true wor- sense of the word as being a fanatic, like fully invested in and into this character, wanting to learn about it and know everything that they can about the character. Well, Aquaman did that for me um, it, and, it, and it gave me a deep desire to just soak in and learn everything about Atlantis and Arthur Curry that I could. Like you, Patrick, I didn't know hardly anything about this character. I think that I read the first maybe volume or so of his comic when New 52 came out, and I too dropped it pretty quickly because I didn't really have an attachment to that character. So it was one that both of us were like, oh, well, that's, that's fodder, that's extra stuff. Um, and so since then, you know... My only Arthur Curry knowledge comes from Justice League, frankly, and Mm -hmm. I I love the casting, but what I saw here made me come home, immediately buy pop figures, immediately buy the t-shirt that I'm wearing right now (laughs) because I wanted to have it for my second viewing, and – I immediately bought the comics. I started reading the New 52 run. I've already got one volume in, and I I can't put it down. I mean, I I truly was immersed in the mythos of this character because of this film. Uh, The whole time, I think I probably annoyed my kids because they just mildly liked it. They were both like, oh, this is cool. I I think it's, it's a lot going on for their little brains, and, um, you know, I was constantly just leaning over, smiling the entire movie. I just had this grin on my face. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, do you see that? Do you see that? And they're looking at me like, yes, Dad. Yes, we saw that, too. You know, <laughs> like, it's just a guy riding a shark. And I'm like, no, it's a guy riding a shark. Do you not understand? There are laser beams this is Willem Dafoe,
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> hammerhead shark, people. You have to understand what this means. So anyway, it, it, is, it is very special for me. And I, I just kind of wanted that background, to be clear, um, what I was at coming into it, where I was at coming out. Um, But the word incomparable comes to my mind because of the unique blend of film this is. So when James Wan set out to make this, he intentionally went about it to make a superhero film unlike anything we had ever seen before, and he completely succeeded. Instead of your traditional superhero film, what we have is an epic fantasy slash science fiction adventure movie with elements of a romantic comedy thrown in for good measure. And it happens to be about a superhero who is also essentially a god because that's what DC gives us. And that's one of the reasons that we love their characters so much. I love it all. And I think as a Navy vet, I'm also, I have an additional attachment to this because I've always been drawn to the ocean. I've always loved sea creatures and been fascinated with studying the ocean, and every seeming influence that Juan pulled from in creating this whole film's aesthetic, the various tones, the soundtrack, everything worked entirely for me. Um, So it is literally incomparable to any other superhero film that I've ever seen because it is so unique, and I think the result of that is what makes it so special for me. Um, So that's my initial gushing lead-in.
0: Well, I confirmed everything that I've been seeing on social media that you post. So thanks for being consistent.
1: <sighs> Man, that's <felt laughs> so good. Okay, all right. Fair for you right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm ready to dive into this. How many times are we gonna say that? I wish there was a counter, a little
0: button yeah. Clicker. Um, let's plunge. Let's do it. <laughs> make some waves, guys. Let's So make good.
1: Some waves. Well, let's start at the beginning because um, it's a big film. It's two and a half hours long. There's a lot to go through with it. And I wanted to specifically talk about the opening because w- the first thing that stood out to me was how kind of abrupt it was. I felt like we were like, boom, we're thrust into this opening and and it's happening. Like, Momoa is narrating, my father was a lighthouse keeper, and my mother was a queen, and I think he says, and I should never have been born or something like that. Hmm. And here we have immediately this love story of Arthur's parents to set up the rest of what is ultimately going to become his hero's journey. So how do you guys like the handling of his parentage and how it kind of drove his character throughout the film? Because I've seen people online talk about how like, oh, that backstory wasn't necessarily needed. Like that was kind of the origin part of his story we get, along with some training scenes. So I'm just curious how that all worked for you. Um, and Andrew, just in general, we're just going to say you answer first so we don't all get confused.
2: All right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting place to start because it is very explicitly a uh, prologue. You know, it, 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 um, it's a late title card because we're, we're establishing a lot here and the tone, um, going into it, not knowing what to expect because like you kind of alluded to, Aaron, there's nothing really about aquaman the movie or or his story that is a superhero story you know like he could be the only person of his kind swap atlantis for ancient you know england um swap it for rome he's not that much different than anyone else he's facing so so it's kind of a to even call it a superhero story implies parts of it that aren't necessarily there. Like it's a hero story, definitely. So, uh, thrown into the fairy tale almost, uh, opening tone. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, that my, my wife's connecting point was, uh, Nicole Kidman eating the goldfish. So, uh, that lets you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was, you know, and, and Tom with his uh, don't eat my dog, you know, and uh, oh, that was great. It, it had the very clear, um, sentimental and sincere and um, not quite whimsical, but um, I, I was very interested in, in the decision to start it that way because there's so much plot elsewhere in the movie. You almost need to saturate the beginning with love and the idea of um, heart as, as what actually started this whole thing so that when we call back to this um, Arthur referring to his mother and his father, you know, that for Arthur, his father's life story is loving his mother. And, 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 you know, it's, it's maybe more heavy handed than is like um, cool to do uh, now, or, you know, um, that you typically find in a, Technicolor, you know, polished superhero story. Um, love is kind of taken for granted between a parent and a kid. So I felt like the decision to, to really soak us in this uh, and I've seen it, the movie, I think three times now. And it, it's, it's made more sense. The more I've seen it to kind of um, really drive home that unlike other heroes, the heart is going to be what defines Arthur as this goes on. And maybe it's the time jump. Maybe it's the, the time that we get into seeing who Arthur really is that, that made a divide for me in my mind. But um, but I thought th- th- that the two of them together were uh, very sweet. Nicole Kidman and Tamura Morrison are, are a lot of fun together. And uh, basically, if this opening served no other purpose but giving Nicole Kidman a chance to fight in an action scene – and then have a reunion at the end of the movie that, like, I knew was going to destroy my wife as it had destroyed me the first time I saw it, Uh, it would be worth it.
1: Yeah, that action scene was off the hook. Oh, it's so I fun. Mean, when we and
2: her move, there... skewering the guy and throwing him up into the ceiling, and then every other time you see Arthur in a fight, he makes sure to grab someone and throw them up into the roof, too. It was, uh, right. I didn't notice that until the second time, but but that was... um It was, it was a lot of, uh, it's, it plays with classic and, and, um, a mother telling a a boy a story in a modern time. I really like that. It's, it's kind of like maybe it isn't clean for everybody the way that those two styles interact, but I could say that about a lot of stuff in this movie.
1: Yeah. And Patrick, I'm going to get to you to say, I just wanted to point out for listeners who may not know that, um, the actor, and I'm not going to try to say his name like you just did, Andrew, because you did so well. (laughs) But uh, he played Django Fett in Attack of the Clones. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So yeah, he was in the Star Wars prequels as a, a pretty well-known character, and I haven't seen him in much since then. But I was trying to place him my whole first viewing. I was like, why do I know this face? Like he seems.
2: Well, so- if we're keeping the aquatic theme, he was also uh, the helmsman, I believe, in Speed Two Cruise Control.
1: No way.
2: So okay. that's
0: where I know him from.
1: Oh man. I wonder – I would not put it past Juan to have done that on purpose. All right, Patrick, what do you think about that opening?
0: Well, it definitely managed expectations for the rest of the movie. Uh, Like you mentioned, Andrew, it's it's setting up a love story first and foremost, and that being the driving force. It wasn't revenge – I mean, you could call it a revenge story, but it was really a revenge story driven by love. And you think about the motif of a lighthouse, this isolation – and how a lighthouse keeper is typically one who was not going to find love. There's this great song by a, a folk band called Nickel Creek that personifies a lighthouse and its relationship with its lighthouse keeper. And it tells a sad story about how um, his, his love left and she, she met her end uh, by having her ship crash against the rocks and he couldn't do anything about it. And then, um, of course, the lighthouse keeper, he ends his life too, because he can't be with her. It's very sad, but very pretty. And I don't know. It, it's, it's not really a breakup song. It's, it's, it's very nice in terms of how it's being written, but it personifies this non human character in terms of, of expanding the isolation of what it means to, to run a lighthouse. And so you see this relationship that starts at the very beginning. And I fully expected it to come full circle at some point. How? I didn't quite know. I had options for sure. She was gonna come back or she was going to be uh dead. He was gonna find out for sure, um whatever was gonna happen. But there was going to be resolution of some kind for their story. Because I think Juan wanted you to have that book ended. I think he wanted to book in the idea that it started with them. Everything about her. Arthur's life started with them obviously his birth but everything that comes after that his role in Atlantis his cross-pollination between these two worlds and trying to unite them even though he doesn't want to and so I think Juan does a pretty good job of playing with that idea by setting us up early on I was trying to actually I didn't know that Nicole Kidman was in this Um, in fact I didn't know that it off I didn't know that Dolph Lundgren was in this. We thought uh, the guy that I went with was like, was that Chris Kristoffers in there? It's like, no, nope, <laughs> it's like, okay, that, that now makes sense. I can see Dolph Lundgren in, in my head now uh, playing that role. But so it was nice. And then even the expectations of what the action sequences were going to give us this whole um, dynamic comic book esque kind of action where it didn't feel contained. It didn't feel constrained. It felt very much expansive and lots of fun and lots of movement and uh and it created a lot of energy on the screen for me and i said I, i'm probably i said we're probably going to get a lot more of this and sure enough we did and so i like the fact that he sets our expectations from the very beginning and doesn't try to manipulate us in in any kind of way he just tells us this is what it's going to be just like you mentioned earlier with jeff john's stories, like this is the story and i'm not going to apologize for it being any more any less than what it is and i think Juan does that from the very beginning by saying, this is what the story is going to be.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And And that's what it did for me is it set the tone and it told me right away, okay, fantasy and epic, like these are the directions we're going. So then it allowed me, I think, once we got into the action and we started getting that superhero stylized stuff in the submarine where we get like screen pausing so that we can, you know. You can pose and like hit some rock music beats as we're turning to like fire a portal, you know, <laughs> cover at somebody's like that kind of stuff. It set me up for that, even though this was more like the emotional, you know, connective stuff. But it also gave me what I loved about it is I, I there's more than one relationship I cared about in this movie. It's not all about like Arthur and Mira, like there, there. That's a one relationship in the film, but there's the Tom and uh, Atlanta relationship mm. and then there's the arthur and his father relationship there's the arthur and his mom relationship and it creates the ability to orm have and his mom those. yeah yeah and then we have an orm you, know, you get all kinds of branches of the family tree coming out um but yeah i i really really enjoyed it and i i actually liked it more the second time knowing it was coming though i, I mm. did think it was abrupt that first time it was kind of like oh my gosh what are we doing but once i had seen the film i felt much more into it. I liked the idea of this fate and the, you know, the analogy or the, the old parable, whatever it is, that's being story being told. Yeah. Two ships at sea will always find each other, yada, yada, yada. Um, and it just, it really made me feel a lot more connected this second time around. So
2: I, yeah, to, if I can mention about that, cause I'm, I'm so now this is an invitation to all of your listeners. I, I know a lot of them do this already, but, um, when a director puts something in there like that, uh, feed your curiosity to look up what that is because that's not in there by accident. If I could just read – because I love that quote and this – it speaks volumes. Not only because Jules Verne wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Journey to the Center of the Earth and we go to both um, <laughs> in this movie. But the the quote is, put two ships in the open sea without wind or tide and at last they will come together throw two planets into space and they will fall one on the other place two enemies in the midst of a crowd and they will inevitably meet it is a fatality a question of time that is all the, and that is such a i mean it goes to, to what you were saying patch like uh, it's expected right it is we know this is going to happen um and and, and i like that that's a good indicator of um what kind of i've used this term with uh with Zack snyder in these movies is the mythic right that uh, it do not shock me with where this is going to be resolved because i know it's going to be resolved with one brother and the other you know facing off with wind and water somehow involved <laughs> and uh i i just love that that is where the story begins that it is fate right not not only um like destiny but it's destiny because you are watching me tell you this story and i am following the rules of a story and i i, I love when some people call it meta i think it's just nice to see uh mm-hmm. a director when they when they know what they're kind of playing with and another hint that hey we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here this is an epic and we're going to give it to you
1: yeah i agree i the other thing and i i'm glad you read that whole quote because i absolutely love it um but other than part of it that i Think that I enjoyed is that with Arthur narrating, it gives me the sense that our story is being told via Arthur's memory. So yeah. this may not be exactly how things went down. This is what Arthur has been told through his life, through Tom's, what Tom remembers of his relationship and mm-hmm. how it, how it took place. And I just like that aspect of it. Like, I don't know, there's something different when you're, you're telling a story in the past and you know that characters are remembering it versus when you're seeing it kind of in real time play out, like we, it, when you're seeing it in real time, you know that it's fact and there's, there's no questioning what might be, it might have actually gone down. But when you're yeah. talking about it from the past, characters are going to remember things differently, just like we as, you know, actual people do. So, yeah. um, that's a fun little additional part of it. So we get into our villains. Let's talk about villains and, and this is broad. So we can just go wherever <laughs> we want here. Let's start though with Black Manta. And I want to say this, Juan has I, he's been putting out, you know, he's done some interviews which is rare for him, but he did one really good like 35 minute one and now I can't remember who it was with. Might have been Collider. I think it was Collider. Um check it on their website, fantastic. It's full of information. Mm-hmm. But he said specifically in that interview that he hates dual villains. <laughs> but that He knew he would, quote, be crucified by the fans if Manta was not included in this film. So, and he he said it jokingly, like he would never have included him to appease fans. But ultimately, the way the story was written, he felt it worked out really well because of the way that Manta can parallel Arthur's path and Arthur's life and connect to him, um, as well as the obvious with King Orm and his brother's connection. So how did you guys feel both about the dual villains and then specifically about Black Manta? Because I didn't know anything about Black Manta going into this, not having the knowledge. Um, I hadn't gotten there in the comics that I read. So the only thing I knew about Black Manta was what I saw in the trailer was, wow, what is this big bug-eyed thing that shoots lasers out of his eyes? <laughs> so it was a really cool thing for me to get to learn about him and his pirating Background and all that stuff. But what, what, how did it work for you, Andrew? Cause I'm assuming that you knew about Black Manta.
2: Yeah. And, and I, and I like him a lot. And he's kind of, uh, like he is one note, um, intentionally, you know, I think in the rebirth, uh, recently of Aquaman, he, uh, kind of says plainly that what makes him different from other villains is he hates Aquaman and will not re- like he is driven. He he's a, a figure of just total, uh, vengeance and hate. And, um, he is an interesting, what's interesting about that is how that started because it was Arthur who did it. And, uh, you know, that's, it's an interesting, um, just thing for, for any superhero that the mistake they made, uh, they have to live with kind of for forever now, uh, with what they've done. Um, and they, they pull a twist on that in this version of the story that when we talk about like where the blame lies, I I really enjoy what they did there. Um, him as a character I acknowledged and I had more issue with it the first time that he is very much a uh, – like a, a tool um, of Orms and is very much a uh, – you know, you you can see that written out uh, from a plot point first, maybe more than a character. Um, at least that's how it felt as it went along. When the story was over, I didn't mind where it was left. Um, I, I thought that he had kind of been served a means to up his own game for the next appearance. Um, I thought they his motivations are established, even if they're not particularly riveting, you know, from his point of view. And there was a really good action scene. Um, some, the, the gag of his helmet being so damn big, uh, I thought it was, was a, was a pretty good one. And that is definitely one that plays for, um, for the, for the people in the audience who, who know the character and know that in no way could you explain why this dude's helmet is so enormous on his body, which is kind of a running joke in the comics, but they do a pretty good job in this one. And Hey, you know, uh, it, it's all set to, uh, depeche mode um in his montage of assembling armor so what more could you possibly
0: ask more from anybody really yeah when i when i think about black manta in this iteration i mean he was my first villain in the aquaman kind of uh sure road gallery and so seeing him is great and so i would be if, if i were. a a big fan of Aquaman, that would be kind of the villain that I would want to see, but his appearance and disappearance and then reappearance is kind of quick and dirty. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it was, I think it was side noted for, as you mentioned, Andrew moving Aquaman's story along to connect him to the bigger story that I think we were supposed to care about. The, the thing that I, I struggled with was that kind of cool factor of Black Manta. Like you introduce him and very quickly we have a villain's birth. You know, he goes from being a pirate to being a arch nemesis of Aquaman. And I don't mind that. I mean, I we talked about this on the Waterworld episode, how Dennis Hopper's character is fantastic as that mustache twirling villain that you just want to die because he plays it so well. And I think Manta does that in this because we've seen that Oh, you killed my father! Prepare to die. That kind of—it's the Inigo Montoya kind of—it's the—it's the the vengeance thing, except it's being played from a from a villainous point of view. So I don't mind that story. It just felt to me like he's—he could have enough to have his own film, and the sequel obviously could make that happen, as the you know the end of the movie pointed to that. But at the same time, I also I. I get why he was necessary. I just think he was, if you're going to use one, use a character, make him more sustainable. And he didn't, I don't feel like he got enough sustainability. He was there, gone there and then gone and then there again. And he just kind of popped in and out of the movie in a way that I didn't really have enough time to care about. Yeah. He's, it, it it
2: almost feels like a a job that would have been, uh, fitting for Merck. Who is, uh, yeah. Ocean Master's top guard and in the comic, he's yeah. more of a supporting character. Um, my, my wife had a similar thought. She said that she, she liked the actor, uh, and th- that character was, was so interesting in the, even the one note he was hitting. She wanted more. And then I brought up, you know, if he was in it a little bit more, then we might have been ended up feeling like we we didn't get enough because it's 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 tricky by putting him in there i know why james Wan did it but it but it is definitely where like the idea of we're going we might have one chance at making an aquaman movie so let's get black Manta in here but i like what they did with him still like i said from uh the end of it but i will not disagree with any point you just made
1: yeah Yeah. i'm right there too patrick like i i would not disagree with anything you said but i also completely enjoyed him my only, or not it's not really a negative, but the, the thing that I wish for is like, I, I don't like how he just disappears after the f- the fight in Sicily. Sure. Because he just, he's gone. Like, and he doesn't pop back up for the last 45 minutes of the movie. And so up until that point, it feels very, his progression feels pretty natural, but then he's just like, okay, gone. What I do love is the fact that he's there and that he does set up the sequel, like perfectly. And- I'm all for that and I think it makes for a wonderful origin story that we've already had for Black Manta so we don't have to go through that in another film. We don't have to find out how he got made as this big villainous you know arch nemesis for Arthur. We've already got that background and we can just kick it off on and start running um, or swimming I guess in the sequel. What I do love is I love the actor. No idea who he is. And that is part of why I love him because you're right. He's hitting like that one over the top crazy note, but he's doing it perfectly. So you, I I think your wife is so right there. And I think not having an idea of who that actor is helped me a lot because Mm. had that been somebody I knew, I would have needed more screen time. I would have expected more from that role. Whereas. If it be, it's I don't know what else he's done. I haven't looked him up, but I'm in, I mean, I'm assuming he's not in anything I've seen or noticed him in strongly. So, um, it, it was a breakout kind of thing for him. What I love though is that Juan doesn't just throw him in there willy nilly, and that's that's kind of my thing about this whole movie. And what I get frustrated about when people claim that it the narrative is bad and all this other junk. Is every and every decision is intentional and has weight and meaning and stakes and and, and it all ties into something later. Just like Snyder's, like this, there's a reason that when they screened this for Snyder and his wife that they loved it. You know, Juan yeah. showed them the director's cut and got his blessing. That's good. <laughs> he didn't give it to Justice League, um, <laughs> for good reason. So what I love though is the idea of parenting and this pirate legacy that is created. I was blown away when I saw this. When we get introduced to the, the pirates and we learn that Black Manta's dad is there, and there, it's just a brief bit of dialogue, but he starts talking about how his grandfather was a Navy frogman, and he came back from the war, and his country forgot about him, and so he turned to pirating. I don't know why, guys, but like this hit me like really hard, and I was thinking about how, man, there's parenting where you bring up a child in the way he should go, and mm-hmm. it's good, and there's parenting and you bring up a child in the way he shouldn't go, and it's bad. And his dad is literally creating a villain. He's creating a pirate, a murderer. You know, like he's rewarding him for taking over the sub and giving him a gift. And I I just, I felt it was so tragic. Like, I guess, I guess because I'm a dad and I thought to myself, man, that's sad. Like this guy never had a chance. You know what I mean? Like it gave me empathy for Black Manta because I know that this is how he was brought up. Like, you know, like I could have been brought up that way. I would be a very different person. If that's all I knew is that my grandfather and father were pirates before me and they created a pirate out of me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um And I just thought that was a really cool, like deep touch to something that was so minimally involved um, overall. Mm. I enjoyed that a lot. Um And then, yeah, just the fact that Black Manta and Arthur correspond and like kind of carry this this same sort of path like black manta blames arthur for his father's death obviously and then king orm blames arthur for his mom's death like everybody's blaming somebody <laughs> in this movie um and we'll talk about that in a second but I, so what did you think about king orm then as the other and the primary real antagonist of the film andrew
2: uh i i thought patrick wilson this is like a perfect perfect uh rendition of who that character is for me and uh you know he clearly he and Juan made the decision to to go for it um with him and kind of live up to the um absurd grandiosity that even the name ocean master you know has um did to kind of (laughs) there was a point i think it was after uh, he defeats arthur that he kind of floats up into the arena and just goes ah to to the crowd and um it was a good like oh okay yes that is where this is rome you know as they said in gladiator rome is the mob you know that that their their king is um rules through power and that uh unchecked and the fact that it came after we had just seen that he actually there was more nuance to him, Um, you know, that he was smart, but he knew how to bring that spectacle to it. Uh, and Patrick Wilson has said, you know, just open up any comic book of Ocean Master and who you see is who he was aiming to to bring to life. And I think by the time you get to the end of the movie uh it's one of the most faithfully adapted characters uh that i've seen in a comic movie uh so i know it is it's big and it is over the top at times and and intentionally so uh which might not work for some people but for me i would say like well that is the character and that's he makes room for for Arthur to be uh, a hero in a different way. And I and I thought that the movie really executed well on that.
0: Yeah, I think there's a sense of grandioseness that exists in King or that's that's what I liked about him more than anything is is his, his his ego and everything that he was trying to gather and trying to get created this really fantastic contrast with Arthur that helped set up what we knew was coming, this confrontation between these two brothers. And I think both of these characters have huge personalities, but I think Juan succeeded in being able to differentiate their big personalities in their own individual ways, um, particularly with the more highbrow, fancy pants talk of the, the ocean master and contrasted against the more vernacular. Of, mm. of Arthur's and I mean that just being one example that that stood out but I think even there you know the, the costumes help support that you have this I noticed that several times it felt like Orm had had like an like an aura around him had a glow around him. that probably wasn't yeah. the case but then you have this gritty Arthur Curry you know with the beard and the you know the 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 jeans and the t-shirt we were actually joking today talking about the movie and saying Why is it that when he's on the surface he has his shirt off, but when he's in the water he's got his (laughs) clothes on? What's going on? This is the weird. What's going? What's happening here? But I think the intentionality of Orm and his entire presence, his entire personality, helped lend itself. Help. It lent itself very well to that conflict and that visual and personality contrast between him and Arthur that really made the the third act work in the way it did. Yeah, I I could talk for like an hour <laughs> just about,
2: or because I I like there was there was the one thing where I, I want to make sure I mention Dolph Lundgren, uh, in in that like first scene where they were on sharks and he he was saying like um the the Fisherman King would never go to war and the brine would never pledge loyalty and I was like wow only Dolph Lundgren could sell this dialogue yes like yes. only someone who has has worn a wig a headband you know sandals and carried a big (laughs) sword could sell this and for for patrick wilson who you know of the conjuring of phantom of the opera uh, the fact that he could stand next to adolf lengren and exchange it i I was i was sitting there thinking like this is so much harder to pull off (laughs) than people actually acknowledge um but at the same time when they had that squaring off like in front of his throne and he said you know like are you challenging me for the throne and arthur says like i call it an old-fashioned ass whooping or something there there was still a level to it where you could see orm being like well let's do this then you know like fine fine like they were both kind of you know on that same level of uh of machismo just
0: totally channeled in a different way I, i had so much fun watching him it's it's very much epic juvenile brotherhood right there. And, <laughs> yep. and I, I don't know that we get to see that a lot. And Aquaman as a property and Arthur specifically gives us that opportunity to see, Hey, what would it look like if a guy were to come into this world that he's not supposed to be a part of and be able to just hold his own? Yeah. Um. And and this movie helps kind of give us that, that dream.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. Did you, Can you believe it? I mean, this is, two movies within a month that have incredible Dolph Lundgren performances how how did that happen like where where did
0: that come what, what from? year are we in is this 2018 yeah. like <laughs> what's going on
1: <laughs> can't, can't even believe it and two two like sort of half villainish characters that we care about like so it's just really cool um I loved Patrick Wilson I knew nothing about King Orm I didn't know his name was Orm, O-R-M, for the entire movie until I got home and started reading the comics. I thought it was like Urn or something. I, I mean, there was that was my only concern is some of the, the mythos and the, the the history here, you know, the way things are said, you can't necessarily pick it all up and understand the spellings correctly. Oh, can I make it, it
2: even worse for you?
1: Oh, go for it.
2: Uh, Arthur's Atlantean name is Orin.
1: Oh, gosh, why? <laughs> No that's bad um, just guess, yeah <laughs> but yeah I loved I loved his character and I love 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 loved Patrick Wilson in the role I I've seen people complain about it and I just I, I just don't understand I really don't I thought he was incredible and it's it's awesome that he's the older actor playing the younger brother by the way <laughs> um but yeah I, I think grandiose gravitas is what he brings to it and I just fully bought both his. Level of confidence, his level of ego, and his immaturity. Like you were yeah. pointing out just now, Patrick, where like he's ready to go too. Like he just wants to like embarrass Arthur. It's mm-hmm. not just about winning. Like he wants to do it in public and make him understand that you know he's lesser than um, because he likes that glory. And and I loved his entire arc. And and it all comes from this idea of blame. Like I think where both of these villains. Like I said earlier, Manta's blaming Arthur for father's his father's death, Orm is blaming Arthur for their mother's death. Um and Orm is blaming the surface for pollution and war. It's like blame seems to me to be driving the motivations of the villains. Do you guys feel that way?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Who did mom love more? You know, <laughs> I mean it, it, and and uh scarred uh kids who were treated badly by their parents or um yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a nice. I think I, what I like most about that is that you might not even really notice that the first time around. You know, the, the more you think about it, you realize this is all about parents and their kids.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's it's good. Go ahead. Well, and when you think about blame, the the antithesis of that is ownership. So I have I had a recent conversation, you can call it that, with my five and a half year old, where she was saying <laughs> it's debt something happened and he finished his statement by saying it's daddy's fault. And uh, (laughs) I was like, well, what did I do? And I'm trying to have a, you know, this is me trying to have a conversation with this almost six year old and it's just not going very, very well. But the whole time I'm thinking, why are you not taking ownership of what you did? Why are you not owning this? And so the contrast to that is, I think part of Arthur's journey is taking ownership, not, against the blame of somebody else, but against, but towards who he's meant to be. And so the big climax of the film is him getting the trident and basically saying, yep, I'm the king and I need to own this. I need to embrace this. And I think that that's a really nice contrast because in order to not blame someone or something, you were taking ownership of something else. You're taking ownership of that problem instead of being blamed for a father's death then maybe Manta could say, well, what do you know, I'm not going to go into the psychologist couch and try to figure out these mental things that are happening with these characters. But I think for the for the most part, what you have is you have people that don't want to own up to what they could do to help better the situation. And that's an obvious thing. It creates good conflict in movies and in storytelling in general. And I think it plays nicely into to Arthur's story arc where he is reluctant to take ownership of you know uniting the the surface and the 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 underwater world um and he doesn't nice. want to take ownership <laughs> he doesn't want to take ownership <laughs> of the uh yeah i know i said that and i didn't <laughs> I think of atlantis and all that other stuff <laughs> um but i think it's it's a nice uh not metaphor, but it's a nice kind of storytelling device that we have this interesting contrast. And maybe it wasn't intentional, but if it was, kudos to James Wan and company for putting that in.
3: Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: So Arthur's trying to unite the seven kingdoms. Is that kind of what was meant on the poster when they said unite the seven?
3: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I, uh, a lot uh,
1: of, a just... lot, lot of uniting of seven things going on in this universe.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or there would have been, uh, well, we'll never know. Uh, I, the thing I, the thing I really like about, um, blame in it, and it ties well into, uh, the, the, the theme of mercy, uh, and, you know, that being learned, um, was for, for anyone who doesn't know, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier in the comics, uh, Arthur just kills, um, Manta's father in a rage, believing that his father was responsible for Tom Curry's death when it was really Manta's um, and so it was a case of Arthur losing composure, going too far, taking a life and then, uh, you know, paying for it by now fueling Manta's vengeance. That's never going to go away ever. Um, and I, and I appreciated cause that's a hard thing. I was wondering if they were going to actually commit to having him kill somebody. Um, and he doesn't in the movie, they have him, uh as he says to Mira late, later in the movie, um, I basically I, I could have saved him but I decided not to and she says that they I think she says they picked a dangerous trade um, you know they're pirates like that kind of thing happens you are not guilty for what their fate brought them and he says it doesn't feel that way and I thought that was such a, a articulate and an elegant way of getting to what makes Aquaman different or what's made him different for me than the other members of the Justice League is that the, uh, burden on him is, is big. And there, there's a burden on Superman, but it's different. It's like, if someone, if that, if that happens to Superman, um, he is responsible. You know, he, he is guilty because he could always stop it and Batman would never be guilty about it because he, he's infallible, right? Everything he does is on purpose with, uh, Arthur. In the same sense that of, of being king, it's always a choice. Like he, he will always choose to take that burden on himself. And I feel like that fits so perfectly. Um, that just is, you know, a, an Arthurian character. Um, I'm carrying this on my shoulders. And it was, it was just a nice way of getting to that without him actually being king of Atlantis. Like in this particular story, he still, already based on the kind of person he is um he is choosing to take those burdens on and uh even you know when he gets to saying i'm i'm not worthy i'm here because i have no choice uh but we know he does and that that's what makes him great to us is that he has no choice because of the guy he is and that Yeah. yeah
1: Yeah, it does. I I love, loved, loved the theme of mercy that was running through this and how it's juxtaposed against the Atlantean ideals, uh, you know, where they even, I think it's, I don't know if it's Orm who says it, but somebody says, Atlantis doesn't do forgiveness or, or, you know, like they don't do mercy and forgiveness there. It is not part of their traditional way of living. And so here you have that great conflict of Arthur who... He's he's kind of the same way, but now he's learning this new method and the way that it all pays off in the end of the film is is pretty powerful um, for me. And I think that, um, you know, him learning mercy throughout is what makes him, for me, worthy of the kingdom Mm. and worthy of being the leader. Like it's what it's what makes me want to follow him as a subject. It's not the fact that he's big and bad and strong and he can save everybody because of his strength. It's because that he's able to learn these things. And I love that he's not, it's so great to have casted Momoa for this because our minds want to stereotype and go, he's a big, dumb lug. He is the way he talks. He even, he says it, you know, it's in the dialogue. It's very, Very forceful. He says, I'm a blunt object. You know, that's what I do is I smash. I'm Hulk smash. Like he says that, but you can tell there's so much more subtle intelligence in him as, as you go and as you grow. And it's those qualities that make him kingly. The way that he responds to people, the emotions that you see him feel for his mother and for Mara, the, the romantic scene between the two of them. I love the little romantic comedy part we get in Sicily where he's like eating the rose because she is like he knows it you don't eat the rose but he's wanting to make her feel you know uh, included and -hmm. because she's learning and exploring and I just all of that stuff that we get and it's but specifically throughout this mercy that he's learning is what makes him kingly to me and I just I don't think that's always the case with this kind of storyline for superheroes
2: yeah, they even use that gag in the trailers where or, uh, they watch the video <laughs> – Video. they watch the hologram and then Mara smashes it and he says, shouldn't we have written it down? Um, and she says, you know, you didn't memorize it. And he says, yeah, yeah, something, something, Trident. And then almost immediately it's revealed he did remember it. He did commit it to memory. And him saying, shouldn't we have written it down is is actually just a – he's he's a common sense. Person. I I, right. I thought that was a really nice touch. Yeah. Look to the bottle or, or it's whatever. Almost like,
1: it's almost like he's playing a role too. And I think that's natural. That's realistic. We do this in real life. Yeah. I mean, I, my kids will say stuff like that to me all the time. They'll ask me a question and I will, my gut reaction will be to answer it and say, and act like I don't know the answer when in reality I yeah. do, or maybe I'm processing and it just takes me a couple seconds to get there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's what he's doing. And it, it's like, he knows that he's supposed to be that guy. Like, it would be weird for him if he was just suddenly to change and, like, be completely responsible. He's fighting against that nature, but you can see he's changing at the same time. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's good. What did, how did it work for you, Patrick?
0: I liked it. I think that in some ways it, there's a subtlety of his journey that I didn't necessarily pick on or pick up on until, you know, hearing you guys talk through it that. I think he, he genuinely cares about the world around him. He's not a brute force. And I think what makes him a good king is not just that he has mercy, but that he has both, that he knows when to make the best decision. Um, he knows when to apply brute strength. He knows when to walk away from something. He knows when to blend in with the crowd. And I think that he shows this, subtle way, um, maybe un, un not so obvious way that he is learning from the people around him, particularly from Mira because that's kind of where mm. we see him in a lot of ways. but even in the flashbacks I mean we get we get his karate kid moments with the <laughs> with Willem Defoe's Miyagi character where he's like, why are you teaching me all this? I want to go see my mother. I want to do this and but he's willingly, Even if there is some reluctance, he's willing to take on this stuff. What his motive is, I think, is kind of undefined at that point. But he's those flashbacks help define his willingness to learn. And I think that that's something that isn't necessarily picked up by the general audience is that he's a man who is learning along the way. He has not defined himself from the very beginning. Yeah, he doesn't want to be the leader, but, you know, it goes back to that quote, you know, some people are born great. Some people have greatness thrust upon them. He's of the latter, And that's part, I mean, that's the story is how do we get Arthur Curry to embrace who he is? Well, that's not, that's not the best statement. He is already who he is. He just hasn't fulfilled it through this particular Avenue of leading a kingdom. And if it takes uh, a frustrating brother to kind of (laughs) poke the bear a little bit, then so be it. And I I think that that's missed in the, the, the folks that may not gravitate towards something like a movie like this. I think it's missed because it's not Mm -hmm. very obvious, but it's nice when it's picked up on. and, And as I'm hearing you guys work through it, I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah. That's it's consistent when he's a, when he's a boy and when he's a young man and eventually when he is who we see him as. And, uh, and I, and I think it worked really well. So,
3: yeah,
1: I'm wondering how the duality of this character works for you guys and Andrew, you know, we'll start with you, of course. I'm just especially having comic book knowledge because I've seen a lot of people go, oh, this is just DC's version of Black Panther, which makes me like cringe and roll my (laughs) eyes. And then I hear a lot of like, oh, Arthur is just Thor. But there's a difference because, yes, they're both godly like characters. But whereas Thor, most of our knowledge, Thor comes from Asgard to Mm -hmm. Earth. He He's like a vacationer on the Earth side, whereas Arthur lives on Earth, and he's like vacationing in Atlantis. Like, it's a new thing to go back home for him. And there are some similar, like, Christological parallels um, with his life as well, but specifically in that duality of, like, being of two worlds and building the bridge between them. Um, Do you think that that was paid off well? I think it would be...
2: I would say that it was, uh, less emphasized, uh, like it, it obviously informs him and, and who he is and his kind of, uh, growing up, um, impossible to have a sense of like nationalism, uh, or, or an isolationist thinking because of just the way he was. I would say that they dropped a bigger theme. Without, uh, if, if Atlanta hadn't kind of come back to it at the end, where she said, you know, it's all one. Like, let's get this clear. We're we're putting up walls that aren't supposed to be here, uh, etc. I think the the thing that was really interesting for me was, uh, I kind of got the impression from Justice League, and I think it's what a lot of people had that you cast Jason Momoa, a Polynesian person, um, or a person of partly Polynesian descent. As a water people, oh, it makes totally sense. Like, why would Atlantis be a bunch of white, blonde-haired people? Uh, it makes no sense. It would make more sense for them to reflect an actual culture that is based around the water. And then we got kind of the fun little inversion that, well, no, Atl- Atl- Atlantis is super white, um, super in, – in terms of, like, color scheme, not just uh, ethnicity. It's very um, clean and and, you know, uh, there's no beards like his. There's no hair like his. Um, he has a very prominent scar you know that ends up working really well for him too but uh it just felt like i'm so the thing that is that is most interesting to me for the Aquaman story in the comics is that uh he and orm are in most ways okay with each other you know they they are in a lot of ways they share um a basic identity and a basic commitment to their people and then it's just how they define who their people are is what makes them different. And I, and I think that there is a duality to him, but I feel like it, it, it kind of happens in the comics where instead of having him literally drawn, you know, between land and sea, which can kind of get very clear and played out pretty quickly. Um, they have Orm come in as, uh, a foil, but also a story of what he could have been. But what he is so absolutely not allowed to be, <laughs> which, which makes it an interesting thing for me. You know, it's no coincidence that like Patrick Wilson looks like the Aquaman that we all see in the comic, um, in the movie. And he is as much a hero, you know, in terms of his courage and everything. Um, but then you bring in the question of like, well, what is not only who is the one true king of this place, but like, what is the one true King? And should it be a person who is from this nation, that nation, or I feel like the movie almost establishes that more than anything else, Arthur is of no nation, you know, like all he really has is his family and his family. Oh, also is split between land and sea. Uh, I thought that that was a, a really Maybe a way of kind of clearing out a lot of the stuff that can be almost too grandiose and, and too, um, you know, we've all seen Harry Potter. We know the person who doesn't want to lead is the person who should, you know, that's a lesson we get. Um, but, but I thought it was really artfully done. Uh, even, you know, the, I think they use the one true king is Romulus in it with the statue. And we're just not going to mention that Romulus had a twin brother who they fought and killed, you know, like which one is he? Um, I, I I like that that kind of echoes through the whole thing. And I think as much as it might be, uh, Aquaman, it might be tempting to think of him as of land and of sea. I personally always find him more fascinating as a story of brothers, maybe because I have one, but, uh, I, that was what I left away was, Oh, what a cool way to make a story of duality. Um, Actually, into sons, better by bashing heads, who are both allowed to be brothers and not, depending on how we want to do it.
0: Yeah, when I look at Arthur Curry, you mentioned something, Andrew, that that I thought about is that he's not—he's a man of no nation—and I think it's fitting that he comes from a family of a lighthouse keeper, being his being his dad. And while the movie does push this idea of being from two places. I, I think it's more about the fact that he's not completely from one place, which raises the question, well, who am I? And I think that further influences his story and influences the narrative overall, because he's trying to, we under, we start to understand who he is and he's discovering who he is. He's just getting more confirmation. And to me, I think that his journey to eventually become king that would work for me is to have a king who doesn't have allegiances to a particular kingdom you know mm-hmm. he is not part of he's not a us citizen that's trying to lead the world he's not an asian citizen that's trying to lead the world he is a man who is trying to lead the world that kind of thing and and, and when i when i see him play that out I think that he does a lot to kind of reinforce that, that he fights with the fact that he has one parent from one place and another parent from another. And that's very obvious. But I think it speaks more to the fact that it reinforces his ideology that who am I? And that's a question I think that he wrestles with himself throughout the whole thing. I don't know that King is the answer to that. But I think it's a step in his journey in figuring out who it is that he is. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. I, and there's there's a great there's the great dialogue there that, you know, what could be greater than a king? And you know, this is a hero. A hero fights for everyone. You know, a king just fights for his yeah. nation. And I love that. I actually fist pumped in the theater when I heard that. I thought that was great. But it screams more humanitarian than leader. I think is what sure. you're getting at, Patrick, you know, like it, you know, this, this care for everyone and equality doesn't work with leading a nation. It just, they, they don't correspond by default. Like if you're leading a nation, you are putting that nation's priorities first. And I think that's fascinating what it would look like for Arthur to lead as a king, because I don't think Arthur's going to do that. No you know, it'd be at, off the. <laughs> right. He would be very bad, and I think that might be somewhere that it would be a great story to explore, um you know, in the future, maybe understanding that somebody like Orm is more suited. I mean that's that's the fact like he is more suited. He's grown up. he's been you know, groomed to be that leader. Yes, he's making poor decisions and going about it in the wrong way. Yeah. but he has those those abilities more so than Arthur would, um, which is which is great. And it adds a nice little wrinkle there. Mara. We got to talk about Mera. So <laughs> here's my quick th- thoughts on Mara. I absolutely adored her. Now, I, yes, I think she's beautiful. Like everybody else who has eyes can see that Amber Heard is a beautiful woman. However, what really blew me out of the water about her character was how strong and independent and intelligent and confident the character herself is and also like just completely badass like she has these great powers and she is awesome at kicking butt and so I was kind of shocked to be honest and I, I thought you know like she stands right up there with Wonder Woman almost as far as the best female superhero i've ever seen on screen and she's never reduced to arthur's sidekick or his romantic interest she is literally his equal if not his better in so many ways and i just loved that aspect of it did you like her andrew
2: yeah and i i i it's easy to like the character from the comics she's very much a a woman of action uh and and that can get kind of annoying when arthur tries to play diplomat uh, but the movie, I was, I was very surprised by, uh, I was very, let's say, unsure when I saw the first photo of, of her in her, uh, costume for the movie. Um, thankfully, never really thought about it when the actual movie was going on. And, uh, like you said, Aaron, she basically just drags Arthur, um, <laughs> Through this entire plot, uh, you know, towards the throne until finally he says like, OK, and sits in it, <laughs> uh, you know, she she saves him on land. She takes him to Atlantis. She saves him there. She takes him in land. She it just it, it's one thing after another that um, and I, I was having a conversation with with some of the other editors at Screenrant that you could make a case that she is another instance of the woman who is infinitely more capable and prepared for this, but the man has to be the, the hero. Um, and I thought the movie even did a good job of establishing that all that really matters here is his claim to the throne. You know, like she needs to make him good enough to claim it because that's what the people demand, right? The The main priority is stopping this war and I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. Even if it means dragging you, kicking and screaming and moping, uh, you know, every step of the way. And I, I was just uh, I was impressed with um, the first real moment that they have where where she saves Tom and Arthur says, you know, I don't know what your name is. And she says, Mara, and they imbue his saying, thank you, Mara, with uh it's just a rare moment in these kinds of superhero blockbuster because you felt that was a, a thank you for saving my father and you're no longer going to question me going along with you. You know, I, I thought that was a really nice way of anchoring them. He is in her debt and basically remains there for the rest of the movie, which is, is great for, for they are a, a power couple in the comics. You know, that is, do not wrong Arthur because Mara might come for you You know that is absolutely it and uh down to one of my favorite moments of the movie which was her summoning all of her power uh you know in a wine cellar that was
3: you know not sick
2: (laughs) not since Jean Grey you know have I seen um oh should we all be worried about this and immediately have her running out because hey i did it i'm a badass my nose isn't bleeding i'm not worried about you know i'm not going to not be able to use my powers for a while now uh i'm just a badass and that's what i do what i mean what's not to love
0: yeah she is definitely arthur's equal in Mm. terms of what she brings to the table and that particular scene and true. My buddy who was watching the movie with me. He just, he looked at me and he goes, Man, that wine's going down. He was <laughs> like, he was <laughs> mourning the loss of all that wine because he knew what was coming. Yeah. But, but there's a sense of, of equality in terms of, of capability and that they feel more like a dynamic duo rather than sidekicks, uh, or her sidekick to his whatever. Because again, he's learning, but so is she. And, Aaron, you you alluded to that that scene in Italy where he makes her feel comfortable. He makes her feel like she's not stupid because even though he knows what's going on with the with the rose, he knows you're not supposed to eat it. He does it anyway because he cares enough about her. It's a very a very tender scene. I think it's a it's a that scene in particular. I think is one of the softer moments of the film. But I liked her. I think after we got through the first third of the movie, the first act, I think she really came into her own and her character really started to appeal to me, not just because we started seeing her abilities, but because she was quite literally going toe to toe with Arthur in terms of the conflicts that he was dealing with and, and trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, stay with him and how he stayed with her. Yeah. Um, she's smart. She's capable. And, and, I mean, I think she's worthy of a spinoff of her own. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that happens, you know, we'll we'd have to see. But I liked her in the comics as well. When I was reading the Jeff Johns run, when I first got introduced to her, I was like, oh, you don't mess with this girl. And like yeah. you said, Andrew, you don't mess with this is a power couple right here. You know, this is mm-hmm. this is the this is the one couple you do not want to mess with. If you're if you ever have conflict, don't don't mess with these guys
2: yeah is uh, are you aqua woman my name is mara
0: you know like (laughs) oh that was so and that miss mara if you're nasty you know that yeah
2: (laughs) yeah i i'm and that was that sequence in italy that felt like that was pulled out of a disney movie um it had and that's kind of again it had a heart to it and i feel like opening that way made that not stand out as weird um it was just kind of under the surface the whole time in that sort of throwback fashion, yeah. and uh, it I I'm I, I have a hard time. It's kind of like you know how you say who was it that said uh, the difference between art and pornography, right? I know it when I see it. Is like I I don't know where where you make a story where it is ignoring the gender of the characters and where it isn't, but I know. A movie that is actually just being kind of blind to the gender. And, and this felt like one, um, to where I I don't even think it's until Arthur looks at her in that sequence that we start to see like, Oh, I think he might actually be someone who is uh, in love or, or, or could feel that way because it has grown kind of naturally. It isn't like, it isn't like Thor where it's like, Hey, you're hot. I'm hot. You know, let's do this.
1: Well, well, that's what I love about it. I mean, I, I love that it's a slow burn of a romance. It, it, they don't start that way. It takes a while. The cu- whole course of the film, it's, it's kind of a thing where they're not like intentionally becoming closer. They're just, it's through the adventure and through their interactions, they start to realize that they have some, you know, interest in each other and they, they end with a simple kiss. Like it doesn't end yeah. with like, Mara, you're my queen. Like we don't go that far. Like, no. As far as this movie tells us, they just got to the point where they cared about each other that they wanted to have a kiss. Like, that's as far as it went. And I thought that was just so good
3: because. Well, yeah. Even because so her on the yeah. head. Right. Uh, like, yeah, at tender. the
1: end. So
2: it's just like, oh, he likes her so much. You know, like mm-hmm. they've become a, a, a team um, in a way that. These movies don't usually handle. And also, I think the first thing we get is they accidentally hold hands, which is very Hallmark Christmas movie, which is very my speed. <laughs> That's great.
1: Um, well, this is, let's just do a quick like free for all with whatever else. Okay. Whatever else we haven't talked about, whether it's the visuals, the sound, the spectacle, the epicness of it. I just have a couple thoughts. Like visually, this film is incredible. I may. I've made the reference in my review that, you know, I came out of it going, it's like this blend of underwater Star Wars plus Tron Legacy plus the Lord of the Rings at the end, like the Battle of Pelennor Fields or Helm's Deep is what that, mm. that final battle um, with the brine seemed to evoke. I mean, right down to like, you know, riding the Car- Carathon was basically like, like a Balrog, <laughs> you know, coming out of the freaking deep things like that. And it just, it, it harkened back to all of these different things that are my personal loves right down to including this middle section of the film that is an uncharted game <laughs> straight out of an uncharted game. And, yeah. and I couldn't have loved it more because it felt like this adventure story inserted in there. Um, and it was, it was just great for me the way that all worked, the sound I personally dug the way that the vocalization felt almost echoey chambered like a it was not drastic but it was just different enough that you could tell that there was an intentionality to it when they were talking underwater Uh, but you could still understand them so I like that the soundtrack I have not stopped listening to I truly say it is one of my top five scores of the year Mm -hmm. it is amazing um the, the the different music that he's created fits this film perfectly and and helps to bring about that epicness that it needs to um so yeah story structure all that stuff worked there were lots of little easter eggs as well that i enjoyed and i don't know <laughs> if you guys caught them, patrick i'm gonna ask you so do you know who lee Wanell l is first nope okay so lee Wanell is the writing partner longtime writing partner of james wan yeah. going back to saw um, conjuring yep yeah. yeah, and the conjuring he took over he Actually directed, I believe his first directorial credit was Insidious 3. Yep. And um, most recently, Lee Wanell wrote and directed Upgrade. That's okay. his movie. Okay. Well, these two guys are like best friends. <laughs> so I, did I send you the tweet where Lee Wanell said, I bought you that $40 box set and <laughs> yes. you made a million dollars on this yeah. movie. I want my 40 bucks back. Yeah. yeah. So that's his best. They're good friends. Well, Lee Wanell is in this movie. He's got a cameo, as these two like to do. And he is the... <laughs> Pilot when he <laughs> Mira jumps out of the plane and he says,
3: Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, so that's Shadowdale. Yeah, um, and then the other big one is from the Conjuring universe. So that whole series largely revolves around the doll Annabelle. Did you see the doll Annabelle in Aquaman because she's there? <laughs> I,
0: you didn't, I didn't, well, I haven't seen it. So yeah.
1: it was my, it, well, yeah, you, you probably wouldn't have even noticed it was the doll. It took me my second, it was my second viewing when it actually caught it in the corner of my eye but when they are getting her ship in that trash area and they're like yeah. when the screen pans out when they're leaving there is an Annabelle doll sitting in her little rocking chair in under the water <laughs> in the trash <laughs> it's great yeah. it's just great um and then the other one I wanted to mention is it was really cool to me I learned about James Wan a couple years ago um, he's friends with Edgar Wright and on Twitter Edgar Wright had found out that Wan was doing Aquaman and he said listen If you can put Stingray in your movie, which is like this old show, this old like water water based type you know, TV show, um, I will give you an Oscar. Obviously can't do, but whatever. (laughs) So James Wan two years later is able to like find a way, and he got Stingray in. It's the show that is playing on the TV when Nicole Kidman um, (laughs) tridents it,
3: skewers
2: it, yeah, Yeah,
1: skewers it. And I just I thought that was I love a little interplay like that. Um, and I love that he did his Easter eggs in a way where they were never distracting, but they're awesome to find and kind of connect with. So those those are are some of my thoughts. Um, Oh, I also love that James Wan. I don't know if anybody else has done this guys, but like he is about to have a billion dollar movies in two different franchises. Yeah. He's going to have a billion dollar for fast and furious movie and a billion dollar superhero film. I don't know that anyone else has done that. That's, pretty darn amazing
2: yeah it's fitting that it's like uh he gets his second with a movie that is so infused with like every movie james cameron has made that you just need to do that and then you'll get to a billion dollars somehow
1: (laughs) anything else so how did all that stuff stick out to you guys like what did you like what did you not like anything patrick
0: um I definitely saw the James Wan. This is again coming from a guy who doesn't watch horror, but I definitely Mm -hmm. saw the James Wan jump scare trademark happen quite a bit. Uh, and it was, and it was telegraphed several times, which is nice for me because I was like, okay, it's got it. There it is. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Um, if I had, if I had any kind of beasts with it, I think there were, there were sequences that could have been shorter, that could have shortened the movie a little bit. I think that it, it didn't have, it didn't have like a return to the king multiple ending kind of thing but i was kind of by the end of the movie i was like okay are we wrapping things up here where are we going and i think some of that had to do with the fact that you have um just you had multiple villains and you were trying to wrap up those stories the other thing the, the one kind of pain point for me was um and andrew i don't know if you've been I I guess you're watching um, the flash, the current season. Um, My wife and I are catching up with it now, but something that happens on the show, it happened quite a bit in, in, in Aquaman. And it was just this kind of verbal, nonverbal repetitiveness of, Hey, you're, uh, you're a bastard child. Hey, you're not worthy. There was just this kind of reiteration of this idea that could and did stand on its own, and didn't really need to be kind of preached yeah. to me, but I felt like it was kind of told to me multiple times. And that same thing has kind of been happening on the Flash with um, with uh, XS, and like it's my fault, it's my fault that things are changing, you know, whatever. But yeah, I I, I want as an audience to be trusted. And again, it's not a deal breaker. It didn't make the movie any worse or anything like that. But I felt like okay, I got what you're saying, I get it. Let's move on and just you know pay this off for me. Um, some of it was, there was a good chunk of it that was telegraphed. But again, I think that goes to the point that having a formulaic story doesn't make it bad. Um, you just have that expectation of what's coming and the, the -hmm. enjoyment comes from how that payoff comes, how it resolves, how Mm -hmm. you, you lay the foundation here at this point in the movie. Okay. You know, X, Y, and Z are coming. How are, you, how are we going to get to that point? And I think that the the way in which those things played out uh, was was really nice, even though I kind of knew they were coming. I guess it's kind of like those, those folks who figure out the twist ending before it actually happens. I'm not one of those guys, and maybe that ruins the movie for them. That's kind of how I felt about this, where it didn't ruin the movie, but I was like, okay, I know it's going to resolve in this way. It's either going to happen this way or that way. Oh, it happened that way. But the way in which it happens in certain sequences uh, was – was entertaining for me mm-hmm.
2: yeah i to, to that point like I, I don't think it's a uh you know like a technically perfect uh movie or anything like that but but most of the things where i would say um you know you could have lost this or you could have taken this out it's usually from a standpoint of you can take that out because you don't need it you know like you you've made that point or or you make it um elsewhere you know we don't need as much of the that middle part of the, the young Arthur because old Arthur sells that also. Um, exactly, exactly. So I, I take that. We've, you know, talked about Batman v Superman and Justice League. I take that as a case of Warner Brothers just kind of letting that be. Um, cause that feels like something where uh, the studio and the producers would say, we don't need this. We don't need that. The runtime is a little too long and. If they, you know, if it being in there is a sign of them kind of letting James Wan, uh, steer the wheel, then okay, you know, that's something I can be fine with. Uh, I think the, the, the big thing that I was left with in particularly like the second half of the movie was, uh, I realized pretty early on it was like, oh, this is, um, you know, this is kind of feeling like anime, uh, you know, it, it's it's not trying to be naturalistic or believable quite. Um, when they're making their escape from Atlantis, of course, Orm is going to be in the ship next to them. Of course, he's going to look and they're going to lock eyes, you know, because that's the kind of story we're telling. You're not supposed to wonder how he caught up, you know, or, or anything like that. Uh, and when it got down to <laughs> uh, there's a point where black manta jumps and we turn to slow motion as his feet hit the ground and i was in the theater by that point going like oh yes like you know show me those leaves show me you know that was um that was where it hit that this is like oh this is metal gear like this is this is hideo kojima's metal gear solid where it's it's like um it's like the coen brothers on acid where you're like with coen brothers it's like wow you really wanted me to look at that Person, I guess, or you know you really wanted me to stay there, um where here it's kind of uh you know you get to the final fight where it's like a wave of fish, man, I never even stopped to think of what that would look like, uh, oh, they're gonna rush up to the surface, oh my God, he's got the the thing swimming right behind him as they're going. that looks so cool, oh my God, of course he's going to use the quindent or the trident to hold this thing's mouth open, and that's how they're going to break the surface. Uh, stuff that like would never even occur to uh, another person to do. Um, it just kept upping itself for fun until you get to that final fight, which is just like that could be a Metal Gear Solid cutscene of over the top f- held poses, you know, slow motion, um, a- a- absurdly a- indulgent stuff that. It- if it you,
1: felt like a stage in an injustice fighting game to be honest
2: yeah uh, just uh, uh, absurd you know i mean when arthur lands he holds the pose uh why is he why is he just standing there why isn't he getting up to get the fight if you're asking those questions you've already been bucked off of this movie <laughs> exactly <laughs> and and you know that what? will probably be a disconnect with as many people as it would be as Metal Gear Solid. There are a lot of people who say it's the best story ever told, and there are people who say I could never get into that at all.
0: Well, and the, I think when it comes the slow mo aspect of it was something that kind of bothered me because of the excess of it, and it it harkened back to some of the some of the things that turn me off about Michael Bay is is the overuse of certain thematic elements and certain visual elements. Uh, even Zack Snyder, to an extent, is very much it's 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 consistent you know these directors are very consistent in what they do and when you when there's an overuse of an effect you lose that effect i get the absurdity and the one-upmanship and the just ramp it up up to you know turn it to 11 i think at some point i have a threshold just like i think a lot of people do to some extent where it's like okay the epicness and the the Overblownness has now kind of worn itself out. And sure, sure. I, I think by that final fight, um, my buddy who was sitting next to me, he was kind of asking the question afterwards. He's like, you know, when when he declared himself to be king at that point, why didn't they all just stop and say, okay, yeah, we're good, you know? Because at that point they were. <laughs> and I'm like, logical, logical question. Don't think it necessarily tonally needs to be answered sure. <laughs> in a movie like this, but it definitely raises that question of, okay when when do you come back to the world of logistics and that may be kind of where the disconnect for a lot of people is because there are elements of this movie that feel very much like it's taking itself seriously contrasted with elements of the movie that know that it's very much a comic book movie and i don't know that there's a movie out there that i mean without going through the entire catalog of the comic book movies in the last 15 years. I I don't know if I could name one that has it right. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. I recently watched Thor and that may come close to it of having that kind of balance of saying, okay, when do we use drama? When do we use humor? But I don't think that that even catches the, the idea that people might feel disconnected here because of the fact that it's, you've got campy lines sitting right next to dramatic lines and if there's a campy line sitting next to a dramatic line, are you making fun of that dramatic line because of the campy line or are you trying to bring your audience into a more, Hey, this is a serious moment. And, and I felt that a handful of times during the movie. And, um, but again, it, it, for the, for the most part, I, I think it was pretty consistent.
2: Yeah. The, the weirdest moments also are it's like, it's not how did that happen or how did they think that was good? It's like, boy, that was a choice. And right. even if it's not for me, it's like, I respect that it's not for me. Whereas you would say like that kind of thing doesn't happen by accident. Like you don't, you don't draw that line between two absurd things.
1: <laughs> See, that's, and that's where I came from. It was, I mean, I ate it all up and it was perfect for me. And mm-hmm. I think, I think this is a great example of the evaluating a movie based on what its director's intention was did Juan give us that live action anime feel that fantasy underwater adventure yeah. that he was trying to create that mimicked this comic book series and I think he succeeds in that in in a humongous way and yes it's not gonna resonate with everyone and I think a problem in film criticism in general, which obviously we're in the world of to some extent, I am even more is that we expect these movies to hit every single person. Like we get all excited when something's a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes meters. You know what? That's not necessarily an indicator of a movie's quality. It just means that a lot of people like that kind of movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I think, so it's fine if, if the fandom speaks and the amount of money that this movie is making clearly says like the fast and the furious franchise yeah this is what people wanted and the fans are going to eat it up people are going to go back and see it multiple times and so that's that is success and it doesn't need the little red thing on rotten tomatoes to say that when it's making a billion dollars um and it's okay it's okay when they're not for everybody you know like venom's gonna make a crap ton of money (laughs) either and i can tell you that one's not for me
2: yeah, I um, the and it's it kind of I always try to keep perspective on that one particular thing is when it's, you know, Batman maybe Superman or someone you can say it's trying to deconstruct heroes and and someone says, "Well, I don't think they did it very well." It's like, "Okay, fair. Yeah, I, then none of this would work for you." With with Aquaman, it's like the the goal here is so clearly to give people um fun, uh, you know, that that they're not getting anywhere else. Um that when you say, you know, yeah, but it's bad though. Like, are, are you expecting the person to say, you know, oh yeah, you're right, I didn't enjoy it, or, you know, oh yeah, you're right, I wasn't missing that, I guess. Um, it, it's just kind of what you said. It, figure out what the what the audience is, and I feel like the exact same reason people will say that that this movie's bad and completely fail to understand why anyone likes it they are probably the same reasons that for Fast and Furious <laughs> movies at this point true and i actually
1: think that i think that Juan actually put a great little meta kind of joke slash dig in here and at least this is how i read it i just wanted to know if anybody else picked up on this the whole pinocchio thing okay so he goes into the whale and then there's this great scene where mara finds the pinocchio book and she comes back and she's like you got this from a book you risked our lives on a children's book and he says there's a book huh I got it from the movie. I swear, I feel like that is James Wan talking to people who go to the movies and don't read the source comic book material. Mm. I really did. I was like, man, that is a that is a direct line saying, oh, you know, it's okay. Like, you got this from the movie. Like you're literally getting it from the movie right now, but you didn't get it from the book, even though the book is sure, where sure. the movie's based on. You know what I mean? I just thought it was – I don't know. I thought it was a genius, intentional – play on words and theme and like topic right there but
2: that's fun maybe
1: it's just me all right well does anybody else have anything pressing they want to hit on before we move to cp
0: i just want to say that i loved willem defoe's performance in this he Uh, just he made me so happy and (laughs) just watching him do his thing again when you see the green goblin and you see this, and it's like, oh gosh, look, it's a man <laughs> from two worlds and it's but he's just I I love him as an actor. I think he puts a he he puts in just great performances in whatever he does, and he was fantastic in this. Uh
2: I'll I'll just throw out some love for Julie Andrews voicing the Carathan, uh and throw out some love for uh John Reese Davies for uh, everybody's favorite Gimli for voicing the Brian King which is like, I
1: think, one and a half lines, which is
2: just hilarious.
1: It's not very long. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious that Julie Andrews was in a movie this Christmas and it wasn't Mary Poppins Returns. Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) Seriously. All
1: right. Well, um, with all that out of the way, um, man, that was great, guys. I'm so grateful we got to do this. So, yeah, let's uh, move to our connecting points. And Patrick, why don't you kick us off with yours first?
0: Sure. Uh, when you when you have a movie like like this that isn't necessarily going to be tops in your top ten or or whatever, um, it's it's interesting because you don't fish for a connecting point. We've we've done this a couple of times where we're like, well, I didn't have a connecting point, and that's okay. I mean, the point of movies is to feel something, not to have a connecting point. The connecting point is really just more of an elevation of something like that, but. What I loved most about this movie was something that I don't necessarily care for that much, and that's the use of flashbacks. It's kind of like voiceover and text on screen before a movie starts. I think we, we talked about that with either Troy or Gladiator. Um, but this is a movie built on flashbacks, and those seem to be the most interesting parts of the movie for me um, because I love seeing not only the origin of Arthur, but also the history of the atlantean people uh, i i was talking to to my buddy anthony after the movie and we had we had talked about the fact that we wondered going in when this movie took place was it before or after justice league and there's this one line by mira where she says you know you defeated steppenwolf you can do this and i was like okay good good i know where we are now we're good here but you still have that interest in, okay, well, it's an origin story. I mean, it's awkward. Mm-hmm. It's the first in a franchise, so you've got to get some kind of backstory. And of the flashback sequences, the one that stood out to me was this origin of the Trident, how it was forged and how it started an evolution of these people whose history is built around discovery and confidence and then arrogance and then failure and then adaptation in some regard. And I left the theater really focused on that sequence. And it got me wanting to spend more time in that time period. The question of how did we get here is asked and then it's answered in the sequence. And it helps give this understanding to why this aquatic world and those that live there are so different. You see all these kingdoms and you're like, well, where'd all these kingdoms come from? And, you know, some adapted some and they flourished, some regressed. And it made the world that we were experiencing... Uh, make a whole lot more sense so like those crazy creatures the trench creatures that at some point i was like are we in pacific rim are we going to see a kaiju what's going to happen um to the 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 middle part of the uh, the center of the of the earth and what i thought was a a different take on isla nubla i was like are we coming to jurassic park this is just crazy you just have this humongous environment this humongous world underneath the surface of the water with all these different creatures and that sequence helps set up the the logic behind it i like being able to say oh so that's why they look like that or that's why they act that way it gave agency to this cool design and it gave the movie a lot more depth than i expected and i really i I appreciated it a lot
1: that's great man yeah the, the history in general was a big portion of what I think I took away as well, wanting to go dive into the comics immediately. Like I wanted more of this mythology. I wanted to learn more about the world. And the fact that Atlantis is not just one place, like we've all been told. Atlantis is like seven kingdoms spread out all across the freaking world. It seems like that was super cool stuff to learn about. Um, And then of course the Trident and how it plays a direct role in the sinking of Atlantis, you know, as well as giving them the power. That was really cool. Um, So that's really neat, Patrick. Great, great connecting point. Andrew, why don't you go next? Uh,
2: okay. I'm going to throw a curveball at you here because I've realized my actual connecting point. Um, the I, in
0: you like the in credits. Really yeah, right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I had wanted to give, uh, we just hadn't mentioned that one shot of them going underwater with the trench, which is one of the most silent theater experiences I've, I've ex- experienced this year. Um, it felt like everyone was holding their breath, uh, so that was arresting. But, but the moment that I think I maybe surprised me the most was uh, when we get to the center of the earth, we get to where, you know, he's going to find the trident and his mother tells him it's on the other side of the waterfall. And for two reasons, <laughs> the first being thanks to the trailers, I now knew what was going to be coming out the other side of that waterfall. Um it would be, you know, that hero shot of him and I had worried that it was going to be spoiling that moment, showing it in the trailers. But then the instant uh, anticipation, like the electricity that shot through uh, myself and everyone knowing like, oh, man, this is the last time he's he's not king. You know, this is the last him uh, going through like a literal curtain <laughs> to uh, become the king that he's going to be. And. They picked that moment. I was totally unprepared for it. Uh, where his mother says, are you afraid? And it's the first time that he says, he shows real weakness where he says, yes. And she says, then you're ready. Um, that, that echoed, I, I was, I was so struck by that as this isn't the kind of moment we get in a superhero movie. This is the kind of doubt that we get. This is purely reserved for. Fantasy, um, mythic, you know, the, the kind of way bigger stories, uh, than these movies have given us, uh, at least, or have given me lately. Um, and it just charged that entire thing with, with so much, uh, emotion and investment. And then we get. You know he he doesn't stop at the waterfall and look back at his mother and mara he stops at the waterfall and looks back at everybody watching the movie it felt like you know uh, like are you about to see what's going to happen here um and that was that was so cool i it, it called back to that moment of him saying you know i it doesn't feel like i'm innocent of this uh I just it, it didn't feel like it should be in a superhero movie and it's something that I so rarely get. Um not since like the Legend of Tarzan, guys. Have I have I had an experience that was like got me so rooting for a hero in a way that is like forget that it's not cool to do that anymore. I just don't really get the, the opportunity to that much. And uh Nicole Kidman and him, um I just I yeah. That one was where I would realize maybe how invested in this I actually was
1: yeah absolutely i'm I'm right there with you, and it's like a subtle investment that you like you said you didn't you don't even know yeah but the 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 marriage of what's happening there, is what's been building his reluctance coming to a head and the score it all like, oh, yeah. I had the same electricity and like I was brought to tears, but it wasn't I wasn't crying out of like sadness I was literally like the people say tears of joy. I was, I was welling up with tears because there, I was, it was such an experience of bliss for me in that, oh, yeah. in that moment and in that scene. Um, and that was almost my connected point. So there, i that glad that you, that was glad us, you chose it.
2: You and, and me, er, that was when yeah. she was like, you're ready. Um, I was under my breath. I was like, you are, you are ready. I was are. Too.
1: That's what I told my kids. I was like, yes. I'm like, I'm serious. Like I was like wanted to stand up and cheer and like <laughs> clap. And I don't do that. Like, I don't do that, but I wanted to. Yeah. Um, well, for mine, it, it, I'm, I decided to go with something really simple. Um, it's at the very end of the film. And I, I don't know why, I guess, but this just hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, both times I've seen the film. There were bigger moments, and there are definitely other moments that made me cry, like the one that you talked about, Andrew. But this single... Line of dialogue meant the world to me, and it's a huge part of why I have now fallen completely in love with this character, this version of Arthur Curry. It's after he fights his brother in that awesome injustice-like cutscene, and he's been defeated, he's about to be taken away by the guards, and Arthur just says to him, when you're ready, let's talk feels so out of place in a superhero movie it feels so out of place in this scene like Mm. no other film that has this scene is going to end with that line but because i loved patrick wilson as orm and the relationship between the brother brothers so much and because it's such a tragic one and one that despite knowing orm is wrong you're still rooting for them to be able to have each other and to be able to have this relationship you empathize and you understand his decision making. And so this line gives hope to that possibility of reformation and this actual brotherhood that they could maybe have. Maybe they could share ruling duties. Who knows? But it's it's perfectly acted in that moment. Um, the way that Patrick Wilson play, he's completely shocked at the line. Mm-hmm. And you can just see on his face like it means something to him. And it's, I don't know, it's beautiful. It's kept simple. It's kept short. It's not lingered on. And I just think it's such a far cry from what happens at the end with these big, bad, villainous fights that we see. So it was really touching to me. And it, it made me think, you know, maybe blood is stronger than water after all. Um, and I it made me thoroughly want to see where their relationship goes in a way that if this was just the hero beating the quote unquote villain... I would have, it would have been just like every other movie and every other story, but yeah. it had so much weight to it because of this. So I loved that.
0: If there was ever a comparison to Thor, this would probably be it between Thor and Loki. And so if you'd see subsequent movies about Aquaman coming out, I'm pretty sure that kind of relationship would follow a similar pattern. Yeah. And I totally agree with
2: you, Aaron and goes exactly to what you said earlier was when his mother shows up and says she doesn't say you were wrong this is bad you're evil she said you were misguided and that goes to that's true of Loki that's true of Killmonger that's true of every one of these villains that we like is that their heart was in the right place but they were misguided and Orm was like the first guy that got to be like oh okay I don't have to die (laughs) I'll just accept that and be taken away and yeah I'll just, I'll just go enjoy
1: my room with a view and hey. think about what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> if only Nanta could have gotten that memo. Right. Well, I looked up the end credit scene to figure out who Doctor uh, Stephen Shin is, and I, I thought it was really cool because he. As soon as I started reading the the first comic run, that first volume, like he's in there. Yeah. Like, I now know exactly what the point of that is. Um, you know, he's this conspiracy theorist. He believes Atlanta lannis exists he wants to prove it patrick's shaking his head right now
0: Now, i'm saying the actor that plays him is phenomenal when i first saw him i was like oh dude it's fake jim from the office (laughs) (laughs) it's probably one of the best pranks that jim plays on dwight and it's with that guy and i'm like oh look at that it's fake jim (laughs) Uh he's great he's a great actor
1: well good because he's probably gonna come back good
0: i'm excited about that well, Andrew, thank
1: you for joining us. This was every bit as amazing as I was hoping it would be. Um, I'm, I'm just giddy because I love this movie and I was so excited to finally get to talk about one that we we all enjoyed and um, were mostly positive on, if not over the moon on. So um, we appreciate you coming and having the conversation with us. Where can people find your writing, your podcasting, all your stuff out there? in the world oh yeah
2: you can find it. Uh, everything i write is at screenrant.com and you can find me on twitter uh at andrew b dice i do podcast spots the flash podcast um i thank you guys for having me i i was so excited to talk about this movie and the holidays have been so crazy packed i haven't even gotten the chance to really until now so thank you for letting me uh just gush um about a movie that uh is is one of the highlights of the year for me and um yeah i thank you for just letting me blather on about how much i love this stupid movie
1: (laughs) you are welcome it feels good to have somebody along along
0: my side patrick where can people find you Uh, you can find me at shoeless patch s-h-o-e-l-e-s-s-p-a-t-c-h on facebook and twitter anytime you want to conversate with me just uh, shoot me an at or a tag and i'll be right there ready to have a conversation with you. Aaron, what about you?
1: Well, if you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can find me on Twitter at FeelinFilm or you can find myself and Patrick in the FeelinFilm Facebook group. I'd love for you to come be a part of that community that is ever-growing, great community. If If you're interested in watching the Marvel movies, we're doing one a week. We're in the midst of phase one right now. We're leading all the way up to Road to Endgame. We'll take a quick break and do captain marvel on its release week but otherwise we're just powering through them we do one big official discussion thread each week that's posted at the top of the group so everybody can come and throw their conversational thoughts in there and just have this big old discussion it's, it's been a lot of fun and we would love for more and more listeners to come be a part of that next week we have some cool stuff we have our first feeling film plus midweek episode dropping so if you didn't listen to our end of year review that came out a few days ago. You should, first of all. It's long, so you can do it in chunks if you need to, but it's like our end of year favorites, and it, it's really fun, fun conversation. We, one of our best of the year, we enjoy the most, and we put out the news that we are gonna start this new Friday weekly episode. It's gonna be about 30 minutes in length, probably no more than 45. We wanna keep it consumable for you. It's gonna be all spoiler free, and it's going to allow us to do different segments. We're gonna talk about trailers reacting to those. We're going to talk about movies that are new in the theaters that maybe I screened for press and we're not doing a big conversation about. I'll I'll give you a review of those. We're going to do quick picks where we talk about movies that are already out and available that we've watched and what we think about those. Um, And we're going to do some in the news topical stuff as well. So whatever's going on out there in the world of Hollywood that deserves a conversation, we're going to have some discussion about that. And this first one, we're going to specifically do that by – Giving our Golden Globe predictions, which will probably be terrible and wrong, but whatever. It should be entertaining to find out just how wrong we are. Uh, I think we're also going to try and talk about uh, Bandersnatch a little bit because that's in the news right now is the hot thing. And we both watched it and we both like Black Mirror generally, but also have thoughts on this film. So hopefully, come for
0: that. Yeah, hopefully we won't call it like Cumberbatch or Balderdash or whatever. I oh, it's <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> I keep it's calling it like happen. 15 different things except Bandersnatch. <laughs> But yeah, come back for that
1: episode uh, on Fridays every week starting after or starting this week. And then we are staying underwater for our main episode next week. We're starting our James Cameron month with our topical conversation on the Abyss. I think that worked out just fine. It was an accident, but hey, it it works out. So we're going to do the Abyss, we're going to do True Lies, we're going to do Titanic, and we're going to do Avatar during the month. And then a couple of weeks after that, we're going to do of Battle Angel, I believe. So it's all James Cameron all the time here at the beginning of 2019 for us. Again, Andrew, thank you so much for being here. Everybody, thank you for listening. We appreciate it more than you know. Stay positive,
0: even about off. <laughs> and keep feeling film.